0: This is an Enlightenment Day talk by Joel, titled, How Does a Gnostic Live? Recorded August ninth, 1998, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Today is Enlightenment Day, as Mike mentioned, and we chose it because it's close to the day of my Enlightenment, which was August 13th, 1983. But, truly speaking, there's only one Enlightenment. Everybody arrives at the same place, if you like, and it's as though everybody sees the same sun, and so there's really only one Enlightenment, and you could say, in a certain sense, it's being revealed over and over again in individual forms and individual ways. So what we're really celebrating here is the possibility of everyone's Enlightenment. So today I thought I would answer a question that was left in the question box anonymously that relates directly to Enlightenment, or what we might call the post-Enlightenment experience. That sounds like a very modern way to put it. And actually, it's a series of four questions, four parts to this question anyway. So let me read this, and then we can proceed. So the first part is, once one has realized the ultimate nature of reality and the oneness of every manifestation, how is there motivation for action or a choice between actions? And then the second part is, how does one decide how to live? What kind of daily life to be in? And then the third part is, does one who delights in the oneness still have equally the option of delighting in a special love relationship or engaging passionately in work or creation? And then four, can an enlightened being, being unattached to anything, make and keep a commitment? (laughs) (laughs) So I thought we'd sort of go through this uh, a little bit. But first, I want to say that there's a problem, as always, with these sorts of questions about the post-Enlightenment experience. And that is the questions themselves are inherently dualistic and therefore impossible to answer, really, from the point of view of Enlightenment. For instance, the question here is, uh, once one has realized the ultimate nature of reality the way the sentence is structured, it implies there's someone here and there's the ultimate nature of reality and somebody has realized it, and this is just not the case. How does one decide how to live, as though there's a person here and then there's uh, decisions? Or does one who delights in oneness, as though there's someone who delights in some sort of oneness? And this is not the fault of the particular uh, person who wrote this question. In fact, it's a problem that's inherent in the nature of language. Language itself is constructed dualistically. And as long as we're speaking in language, we can never get around that fact. We might try to uh, structure sentences without a subject. So we might say something like, once realization has occurred, what is the motivation for action? Sometimes my teacher, Dr. Wolf, used to try to talk that way if he wanted to be kind of technical, but it makes for a very awkward sort of discourse, and it's too much work for me. So you have to live with this fact of the inherent dualistic nature of language. Probably the most accurate answer that you could uh, come up with in words to all these questions would be something like this. No one has realized the ultimate nature of reality. No one decides how to live. No one delights either in the oneness of being or in a special love relationship. There are no enlightened beings to make or break any commitments. Because what Gnosis reveals, what enlightenment reveals, is this, this whole experience of being a separate individual one or I or person in the world, with the world out there and you're in here or however you experience it, is false. False. It is imaginary. It is not true. And that doesn't mean we can't think that way or talk that way. It's very useful to think and talk that way, but it just is not ultimately true. This is why the great Tibetan master Longchenpa wrote, In the rootless mind, pure from the beginning, there is nothing to do and no one to do it. How satisfying. Now, this doesn't mean that things don't get done, that actions and choices don't happen, decisions about life aren't made, or delight doesn't occur, and it doesn't mean the commitments aren't made. It simply means that no one is doing that. No one, with the emphasis on one. No person, no individual, no being is doing this. Now, This is what Gnostics testify to as the result of realization. But Gnostics make another claim as well. And that is, uh, no one is doing this in the case of deluded people either. It's just not happening. Not only is it not happening for me, in quotes, it's not happening for you, or you, or you. So, the real way to answer these questions is to examine your own experience. I turn the the whole problem back to you. You find out, is there anyone doing this? So, we'll go through these part by part and uh, talk about them, but I want to talk about them in relation to uh, what is your experience and maybe we will see some relative differences here, but I really want to direct the attention back to what's going on with you. So let's take the first part of this, and the first part, the way the question was originally worded, once one has realized the ultimate nature of reality and the oneness of every manifestation, how is there motivation for action or choice between actions? Let's put the motivation question aside for a moment. That's harder to get an immediate grip on. But this business about how is there a choice between actions? How do choices in your experience get made between actions when there's a choice of actions to take? So I thought we might deal with this one through a little experiment. I thought I'd ask you to uh, all sit quietly With your eyes open here, and just observe very closely the minute little decisions that go on all the time about little things that happen. For instance, you have an itch. Do you scratch it or not? Your mouth fills up with saliva. Do you swallow or not? Your body's in a little uncomfortable position. You move your head around. And call attention to yourself and embarrass yourself, or not? <laughs> all these little things. Do you blink, or not? So let's just watch very carefully, because this little choice between whether to act or not to act, or, or between different actions is going on all the time. And just see what your experience is, OK? So I'm going to ring the gong once, like a meditation here. we'll just do this for a few minutes. And we'll just be real quiet. And observe, and then I'll ring the gong twice, and then we'll discuss and see what your experience was. All right? So is everybody ready? Here we go. That was just in case none of you had any choices to make about how to react or what action to take. I'd give you something more from it. So what was your experience? Well, as I was sitting here, I had kind of a little crease in my thigh. Uh And it was like, yeah, that hurts, you know, a bit as I'm sitting there. But yeah, it's like, then I go, oh, but can I maintain that for just a little bit longer? And my motivation for that was like... um, just, just trying to follow through with the meditation practice of, of working through it. Uh-huh. So that was more important. So I, wasn't, I was able to not move. Okay. Actually, I'm going to uh, thank you for sharing this. We're going to come back to in a minute. The first thing I want to ask before we get off on these things is, how did you decide how to react to my rah, my roar? It was an instant. <laughs> Nobody decided. Did you react? Yeah. Did you take an action? <laughs> Startle response, you know. Yeah. So, how would you describe that? Spontaneous. Spontaneous. Instinctive. Hmm? Instinctive. Instinctive. Spontaneous. Yeah. Now, let's come back to what you were saying, Lori, about this deciding. You have a a little bit of a painful crease there, and should I move or not move, and then. Thought comes in and starts weighing this, and then a decision is made. Now, how many people have had that experience? (laughs) Almost everybody, right? (laughs) So we say that isn't spontaneous. And it's almost like there's a lag time now. But when I roared at you and everybody jumped, there was a spontaneous and instant reaction. There was no sense of I'm deciding to, to react, right? But when there's a lag time between something happening and then thoughts come in, oh, suddenly there's a sense that I'm deciding something, right? That gives us a clue right there to what this I might be. Maybe this I is something that is an illusion created by thoughts going around. And in fact, this is just what mystics say. In the East, they have a wonderful analogy for this. It's like waving a firebrand. Or maybe when you're a kid, you had a little sparkler. And you wave it around in a circle, at night particularly, and if you get it going steady in the right way, it looks like there's a big circle of light in the air. It creates an illusion. There's something there. You could almost feel like you could, you know, go out and and grab it and take it home and hang it on your wall or something. But there's nothing there. It's just an illusion created by this movement. Well, in a similar way, thought creates this. But if we analyze even more carefully, how do thoughts arise? Do you decide to think the thoughts, or do they happen spontaneously? Mm They happen spontaneously. Now, we're not going to go into this here today. We're just suggesting ways to make this inquiry. But sometime you might want to inquire and see if you can find a thinker of your thoughts. We have this idea, if there's thought, there must be some thinker. In fact, Descartes, a very famous Western philosopher who was very influential on the whole modern way we look at the world, started just on this basis. He said, I think, therefore I am. And a mystic's response would say, well, why? Lightning happens. Does that mean there's a god who threw a thunderbolt? No, lightning happened. Doesn't mean there had to be someone who created the lightning is there really a thinker of the thoughts watch your thoughts meditation is a very good place to make this inquiry when you're sitting there meditating and all these thoughts are interrupting your concentration and they're distracting you and you're getting frustrated instead of getting all frustrated and said oh i can't meditate get interested and say well now who is thinking these thoughts watch those thoughts how are they happening See if it isn't true that they actually happen exactly, fundamentally, I should say, the same way your reaction to my roar happened. And now, let's come back to your, you went around with these thoughts for a while, and then a decision got made. Which way did you decide, by the way? To, I decided to not move, because I it, it weighed less than my being able to hold out and maintain the ah, meditation. okay, this is beautiful. You just made this... Uh, weighing gesture. This is what Zorba called the grocer's mind, always weighing things. (laughs) So then a decision got made because one outweighed the other, right? Mm -hmm. Now, did that happen spontaneously or did somebody make that decision? How do decisions actually happen? Even when there's a lag time, even when there's a lot of thought in between, when the decision is finally made, is it any different than your reaction to my roar. If you watch carefully, the mind creates two imaginary scenarios. What will happen if I move, and what will happen if I don't move, right? Those are thoughts. So this is all going on in imagination. It's like two conflicting movies are playing, and the channel is bouncing back and forth, and then finally the channel settles on one. But what I'm asking is, is there someone who's actually controlling the channels? Or does this whole thing happen spontaneously? Do you see what I'm driving at? This is not a doctrine I'm laying down here, but I'm challenging you to go find out for yourself. This is a formal practice in mystical traditions. It's called self-inquiry. It has all sorts of variations. One of the simplest is given by Ramana Maharshi, who just said, whatever happens, inquire, to whom is this happening? Because that's our other sense of I. One sense is the doer, and the other sense is the witness or receiver or victim sometimes. So, to whom is an experience happening? Is another way to try to find out if there really is anybody in there. Or, is it all fundamentally happening just the way you reacted to my roar? That it's spontaneous that the thoughts are spontaneous, the decisions spontaneous, the weighing is spontaneous. Relatively speaking, we can train our minds to think logically. You know, thinking logically is not necessarily something that everybody's born with. They're born with a potential, unless you have some sort of brain damage or whatever. But you can learn to think logically. You can learn to look at a situation, pick out what are priorities and so forth. That's something you can train to do. I had a producer I worked for in Hollywood who had a wonderful saying, and that was never make a decision before the moment you have to make the decision, but never delay a decision one instant after the decision has to be made. And it's a very good sort of a rule going through life. We get very anxious about making a decision when we actually don't yet have to make it. There comes a moment, in most cases, where the decision has to be made. But until then, spend the time gathering information. Or let the mind weigh without worrying about it. Let the mind do its thing. That's what the mind is hired to do, by the way. It's to weigh things, yes. I've come up with the expression, the decision makes itself at a certain point. Well, this is exactly what I'm driving at. If you watch this... And then at that point, the decision does make itself. You you gather information to that point. And then, as a practical, relative way to make decisions easier, once that decision is made, then sometimes your mind, especially if you're an anxious sort of person, keeps churning over it. And you can actually train yourself to ignore those worry thoughts and hold to that decision. You've made the decision And what if it isn't right? Well, so what? You've made it on. All the information was available. And you can train your mind, literally, to be able to ignore thoughts that are not beneficial, where the mind is out of control. When it keeps going over the same round without any new information, spinning its wheels, it's not doing anything except causing a lot of suffering and anxiety. But then finally, be flexible. Don't be totally attached to your decision. Hold it gingerly because the situation is always changing. And if new information comes up, then you have to drop that decision and another decision will get made. So I'm not saying by saying everything's spontaneous that we shouldn't in our relative lives train kids to think logically or have ways that we can make decisions. But even all that is going on spontaneously underneath fundamentally. It's a spontaneous unfolding. Our communication is a spontaneous unfolding. Your communication with your children, your parents, all that. The fundamental basic reality is there is no one there doing it. This is what the Gnostic realizes. And what I'm saying is, I think if you examine your experience, you won't find anyone either. So let me give you an example then of a difference between a Gnostic's experience and a deluded experience. And by the way, I can only assume that your experience was like my experience before my Gnosis. If it doesn't pertain to you, it doesn't pertain to you. But the difference between my experience prior to Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment is that I used to think I knew things. And now I know I don't know anything. And this is a tremendously liberating realization. And I'll give you one very concrete, dramatic example of this. On our last retreat, there was a woman on our retreat named Anne. And she was having Kriyas, by the way, I I don't tell tales out of school, I asked Anne if I could use this as an example. And she was having Kriyas, and Kriyas are energy releases that happen in intense meditation, and sometimes they're expressed as like shaking and quaking, that's where the Quakers got their name from. They sat in barns, they became really quiet, and they started quaking, it's just Kriyas, Kriya's a Hindu term for this. Uh, But she was also having this... Uh, a sense of pressure and trying to hold all this in and and this has been going on for a number of years but it got really intense in this retreat and one morning at breakfast she's can't eat her oatmeal stuff and she's really sitting there, mm, 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 like that and holding her chest in her body and several people came up to me and said something's really wrong with Anne you to check it out and so forth And I said okay don't worry about it now I had no idea what to say to Anne I had no idea not even something to weigh Do you know what I mean? Absolutely no idea. Blank mind. And and that's good. Because I said, let's go back to the teacher's cottage and, and talk a little bit. She said, yes, I want to do that. So she got up. She could hardly get up. We started to walk out. I took her hand. We walked up the path a little bit. She began to relax a little bit, talk a little bit. And she said, I just, I feel like there's this tremendous roar inside of me. I said, oh, really? That's what it is? So we got up to this little promenade. and I said, Well, now we're gonna roar. And she said, No, no, I said, Yes, we are. And so we stood there, we went to roar, just like I roared at you guys. And we did it again. And uh some people in our group thought she had a psychotic break. And, <laughs> and she felt much better. She just suddenly her whole body relaxed, and we walked and talked, and uh, you know, so forth, and this and that. Now the point that I'm trying to make here is I did not know how to handle this situation. I didn't even have the vaguest little idea, theory, anything. She told me. It came right out of the situation, the answer. So, what I'm saying is the secret is not to fill your mind with knowledge, but not to know. And be willing not to know. Be empty and attentive. And I will tell you the truth from my experience that whatever question you have about any situation, any situation, the answer is in the very situation that gave rise to the question. It may not come as clear cut and quickly as this came, but it is there. You just need a little patience. You need to be attentive and you need to be empty. And you don't have to do a thing. You won't do a thing. It'll just happen. Thich Nhat Hanh, a Buddhist monk, gives another very good example of this in a much more serious situation. He is, if you don't know he is, famous for teaching walking meditation. And he's a Vietnamese <coughs> Zen monk. And for a while he was very involved with helping the boat people, the refugees who were fleeing Vietnam after the collapse of the American puppet regime there. And he was on a boat with some boat people, and they docked it... Hong Kong or Singapore or one of these ports and they would not allow them to dock or they came to the harbor and they wouldn't even allow them to take on supplies and they'd run out of food and water. So they're in desperate straits a boat full of, you know, starving thirsty people. So what did he do? He did his walking meditation. He walked all night and then the answer came. Now, this is a situation where most of us would think Oh, but this is not the time to do meditation. This is serious. We've got to figure this out. But this is precisely the time you need meditation. Whether it's formal or not is irrelevant. True meditation. Becoming empty and attentive. And you won't have to do a thing. The decision will get made. The choice between which action to take, this one or that one, will happen. It will arise out of the situation. One of the meanings of freedom that comes with Gnosis, with enlightenment, is this freedom from this awful burden of self. Mm -hmm. Meister Eckhart, a great Christian mystic, puts it most beautifully. He says, let God work, let man be free. Let God do the work. I know this sounds sometimes even frightening, like to to let go? Can I really trust that this will happen? But what I'm saying to you is it's happening anyway. Anyway. You just don't realize that this is what's going on. I'll just say one thing about the motivation here, because uh, I've talked about this before. There is a difference in motivation prior to enlightenment and post enlightenment. And you talked about weighing to see what the outcome would be when you were talking about deciding whether to move or not, which would be a better outcome for you. So, in a certain sense, you could say, which would make me happier? Is that fair? Right. Okay. I spent my whole life waking up every morning, not necessarily with a conscious thought, but essentially weighing everything in terms of how am I going to be happy? What's going to make me happier? You know, is vanilla ice cream going to make me happier or Rocky Road? I don't know. Or should I go see this movie or that movie? You know, but the realization of gnosis is you're already happy. Or let me put it this way to be a little bit more precise. Happiness is already there in the, in the fundamental nature of things. A fundamental deep happiness contentment. It doesn't mean that sorrow doesn't arise or even fear doesn't arise or primal emotions don't arise. But there's an underlying happiness there. that is the exact same sort of happiness that is there when you go to see uh, the movie Titanic and weep and bawl and cry your eyes out because it's so sad. But fundamentally, you're happy. Those teenage girls are going back and back and back to see this, to get this experience. You see what I mean? Or if you like horror movies, you pay all your money to go see Alien, and the alien monster jumps out of the closet or whatever. And everybody goes, ah, screams, and they have a reaction of fear. But in the movie, fundamentally, that's what they want. They're happy. That's why the Alien was a big box office hit, and they made Son of Alien, the daughter of Alien, the grandson of Alien, and everything else, you know? They only do this because they're making money. And the only reason they're making money is because people are going because they want this experience. And they tell each other, oh, yeah, that was a really scary movie. Have you seen Alien? Oh, my God, I jumped out of my seat. Oh, really? Where can I go see that movie? And they run down and pay their money. This is what I mean by underlying happiness, the happiness of of witnessing a great performance. Let's hope that Alien isn't the peak of our cultural experience here but a great Shakespeare play or a great symphony, you know, that brings out in us all these emotions. So I don't get up in the morning thinking, how am I going to be happy? The basic motivation is, how am I going to express this? Just like you don't play music in order to get music, you play music in order to express music. You don't dance in order to get something, to get dance, you dance in order to uh, express dance, express something. You see the difference here? But again, it just comes from an insight, a realization that when there isn't this little knot of anxiety and worry and fear formed around this imaginary eye, when that just opens up and breaks loose, that the fundamental nature of things is happiness, is contentment. Underneath everything, everything is okay. And part of it's being okay is that we have this wonderful, wild drama going on with everything in it, you know, murders and death and wars, just like Shakespeare, you know. And frankly, we wouldn't want it any other way. We think we would sometimes. Oh, I wish this wasn't happening, I wish that wasn't happening. But you know, life would be pretty boring. I once went through the play Othello and took out all the things we don't like. And you know what happened? Othello meets Desdemonday and they get married. It lasts about five minutes. <laughs> Okay. Um, the second part of this question was, how does one decide how to live, what kind of daily life to be in? So I think this, what she means by this, or he means by this, is how do you decide your overall lifestyle rather than decision by decision? And my prior to enlightenment experience was, I tried to live my life in order to accomplish some goals. It's sort of an extension of just what you're saying that would happen in that little moment of trying to decide whether to move to get rid of the little pain in the leg or not. So what's the goal? What's the best way to accomplish the goal? In my life, I went to Hollywood to make films because I wanted to become uh, rich and live a glamorous life and have a lot of money, and I had goals to accomplish. And so in order to get to those goals, I had to go to Hollywood. In order to make it in Hollywood, I had to dress a certain way and I had to have a certain kind of car and I had to have a certain kind of friends. And pretty soon, I had a whole lifestyle Based around this goal that I had, so the goals still get set after enlightenment. You could say I have goals. I have goals to prepare for this talk, and that goal is to prepare the best talk I can give that will communicate the most to you and and uh, arouse your interest in looking at your own experience. We had a goal with setting up this meditation room where our old little living room was getting too crowded. So we had a goal and, I mean, relatively speaking, fulfilled the goal for now, at least. The difference between me now is I don't choose the goals. They're set for me. So how does this happen? I'll give you an example. Those of you who read my book know that at one point on my spiritual path, before my enlightenment, I knew I had to leave Hollywood. I didn't know what I was going to do. I had some vague idea of visiting some these spiritual communities. I was really kind of lost. I had no idea uh, what to do with my life, those big longer-range sort of lifestyle questions. And I was sitting in meditation and I had this vision, one of the few actual, you know real visions I had where I actually saw in my mind's eye the ruins of this civilization and all these uh, springs popping up and running together into a big stream and a a voice kind of, not a a real, you know, like, hello there, but uh, uh, like in a dream, you know, said a thousand springs become a mighty stream. And I had been toying with this idea of visiting these communities and this and that, and it just all came together for me. I was going to make this video newsletter. I was going to go travel around these communities and let them each have a chance to put 10 minutes of uh, material on the videotape that they could express what they're doing. And so this would be a thousand little springs and they would all come together on this video newsletter. And then it turned out, that's what I thought at the time, but it turned out that this actual vision has determined my whole vocation. This is what I do, my teaching style and everything. I read through all these books of different traditions and I distill out what's fundamentally true and I try to bring them together into one stream. And again, see, I'm saying I here. I don't have any sense that I am doing this. It's happening. This is just all determined. It just unfolds this way. I didn't ask for this. And people say, why did you come to Oregon? A lot of people that I know who are in Oregon say, oh, I came to Oregon to get away from the madness down of California, or I came to Oregon for the weather. It's cool here, and I don't like all the hot weather. and I came to Oregon because I had some students who asked me to come to Oregon and teach. I didn't ask for it, and I had nothing else to do. There was no other, you know, weighing thing going on. And then I lead a, a householder's life. I'm married, and uh, I'm not celibate, and so forth. And this came about, and, and I'm going to skip a lot of steps. But basically, uh, in the in the first thirty days or so after my enlightenment, one of the aston- everything was astonishing. Everything's like new, you know. I mean, how shoes get tied is just astonishing. My gosh. this is how it happens. And one of the things happened is there was sexual arousal. And again, it's not a sense that I'm doing this, it's just happening. Now, sexual arousal doesn't necessarily mean you're going to end up getting married or whatever. And marriage is certainly a whole lot more than sex. But through the course of the years that unfolded, I moved up here and finally I met Jennifer and for various reasons, we're staying together, seemed to be on the same wavelength. She was interested in building the center and this and that. And so it just all naturally unfolded that way. Just very organically. I didn't decide all these things, do you know what I mean? So this doesn't mean that it wouldn't happen differently for somebody else. And a good example is Ramana Maharshi, who after his enlightenment got this call to go to, uh, what's the name of that unpronounceable? Aranachala. Mountain? What? <laughs> Aranachala. Aranachala. Uh, he didn't decide that. He just felt this tug. He went there and apparently no sexual arousal happened with him. he just hang out in caves, blissed out. We have one thing in common, however, you see. People started asking to teach. He couldn't refuse. People started asking to teach. I couldn't refuse. I've talked about uh, the total freedom of enlightenment, but in other sense, you're a total slave. You have no choice whatsoever. You just find you can't refuse. Simone Weil, the great mystic of this century, describes this, this way. She says, I saw that carrying out a vocation differed from the actions dictated by reason or inclination in that it was due to an impulse of an essentially different order, and not to follow such an impulse when it made itself felt seemed to me the greatest of ills. The most beautiful life possible has always seemed to me to be one where everything is determined, either by the pressure of circumstances or by impulses such as I have just mentioned, and where there is never any room for choice. Now, that sounds very odd to our society, particularly, where, you know, we are just demanding more and more choices as consumers and so forth. In my experience, freedom from choice is the true freedom. Put your burden down. Don't worry about it. It will all happen. And when I look at myself, I see the agony that I went through over choices. Everything, you know, from what to order at the restaurant to what career should I have. Suffering and agony because that grocer's mind cannot decide these things. That ego mind can't. These things come from, as Simone says, deeper impulses. They don't come from the ego or the little self. They arise from the heart, if you like. Once they have arisen, then the mind is very valuable. The mind comes in and helps you accomplish how to do this. It's invaluable for human beings. With that thought mind cannot tell you your vocation, what you should be doing, how you should be living your life. That comes from this deeper order of impulses, as Simona says. And you cannot make impulses happen. That's the paradox. You know, the ego mind then demands impulses from the spiritual realm, if we like, but it can shut up, it can get out of the way, it can clear the decks. And this is very much like I said before, Tyson, but This unknowing, to be in situations and not to know, and to be open. And this is really what a large part of a spiritual path is training to do. It's an untraining, it's an undoing, not getting more and more, but learning how to let all this go, to clear the mind, to be in this open, attentive space. And then this will happen. Ultimately, however, the Gnostic has no goal. We're talking relative goals in context of relative situations. Ultimately, the Gnostic has no goal because ultimately consciousness itself has no goal. Ultimately, what all this is, is simply that formless consciousness informing itself of all its infinite possibilities. It's very much like music. A piece of music does not have a goal. And the musician who plays music, creates music, doesn't have a goal in the music. A musician has an ego might, to get rich and famous. But in the music, doesn't. And the music isn't actually going anywhere. We don't get to the end of music and say, now that Fifth Symphony, that's it. That's the end of music. No more music. And we can talk in a relic sense, We're better music, worse music, and all that. But there is no best music. It just keeps flowing out. It keeps flowing out because until it flows out, the musician, him or herself, does not know what is there. And a good way to look at this: this is how consciousness gets to know itself, its possibilities. And its possibilities are infinite, and it goes on infinitely. It doesn't have an end. Okay. She asks, does one who delights in the oneness still have equally the option of delighting in a special relationship? Well, this is a question of universals as opposed to particulars. If I um, uh, delight in nature at large, I can still delight in a particular flower, can't I? I mean, isn't this true of you? How many people like nature? If I said, do you like nature? Most of you, huh? Anybody doesn't like nature here? <laughs> I grew up in New York. There are a lot of people in New York who don't like nature. <laughs> it terrifies Believe me, it's true. But anyway, you can appreciate nature. And then there's some things particular that you appreciate, right? So you have a special relationship with. So you might be walking along through a forest. Oh, and there's some really interesting special flower that draws your attention to it. You don't feel it's a conflict. Well, gee, does that mean I don't love the rest of the trees and all this around here? It's the same principle here, except now it's appreciation of the ultimate nature of everything. And then the question is, well, then, can you have a special relationship with one particular nature? And actually, the Buddhists have a whole teaching about this. And one of the ways they define full enlightenment is the union of the two truths. The absolute truth and the relative truth. The absolute truth, of course, we can't say in words, but there are teachings that point to the absolute truth like there is no self. And there are relative teachings where we make use of the term self because we are talking in a, in a relative conventional context. Here's how the great Buddhist philosopher Nargajuna put this. And their term here is prajnaparamita for gnosis. And the bodhisattva is a very advanced, uh, if not fully uh, enlightened, being. Although the bodhisattva, faring in Prajnaparamita, understands universal nature of things, he understands also their unique natures. Although he understands the unique nature of things, he knows also their universal nature. So what are the universal and unique nature of things? Well, I got a little diagram here, I got my blackboard out, uh, to help get a, a, a sense of there Can everybody see this? Can you see this, Jennifer? So, uh, that is just an analogy. The universal nature of all these figures on this blackboard is, A, they're created by making distinctions in space, right? Just a simple line and they're all made up of blackboard. The content is all blackboard. Correct? Right. Yes. That is their uh, the equivalent of their universal nature. They're all made of the same thing. The, again, the Buddhists have a very nice way of saying this. They say everything has the taste of a single essence. Christians and Sufis talk about everything tastes of God. Really, it's the same analogy here. Everything has essence is God. It's, Fundamentally made up of God, of consciousness, is the way i put it more technically. So they all share this ultimate nature. There's nothing in here that isn't either distinction or blackboard. And yet I can recognize particulars, individual natures, right? And I could describe them, you can pick them out. You don't confuse one with the other. But this doesn't detract in the least from the fact they're all fundamentally the same in their ultimate nature, does it? We can even now, based on this, invent, and I noticed I say invent certain standards and based on those standards have values. For instance, I'm going to uh, invent a circle. I shouldn't draw this as a, such a perfect circle. And oh, who remembers the Geometric definition of a circle everything is equidistant all it's the points the locus of all points equal distance from one point I mean, okay. Say, so say it. it again. Well, I that was the locus of all possible points equal distant from one point. point or source. Good. Source. Okay. Now I can look at these and say Which one comes closest to being a circle? Here I'll make it easy for you. A, B, C, D, E, F. Which one? A. a. Everybody agrees on A. W. Yes. Well, wow, look at this. On your perspective, what could, could be something else? Oh, not after we've defined it. We defined it as that figure in which all the points on the circumference are all equidistant from a center point. So we've defined the circle. This is how we avoid semantic problems here, you see what I mean? we're given that definition, then we can all agree that that is the closest thing on this blackboard to a circle, right? Right. Mm-hmm. What's the second closest? C. C. C, good. What's the third closest? B. B? Okay, yeah, okay, good. Look, we have all this, this random figures here. Once we make a definition set of standard, then we can start judging and evaluating. This is all in the relative world. This has nothing to do with its ultimate nature. The ultimate nature remains the same. Do you see what I'm trying to get at? So I can appreciate the ultimate nature, and I can also appreciate the individual things, and I can also even evaluate them and say one's better than another. This is better, and closer to the ideal of a circle, than C. And C is better than B. Do you see how all this is working? Still doesn't change the ultimate nature. And their relationship to each other may be better or worse, but to the ultimate nature, there's no better or worse. They're all the ultimate nature. This is why, if you like, in God's eyes, everything is equal. God loves everything equally from God's point of view, even though we can recognize differences. Now... What she's driving at here in this, uh, in this question is, is it possible to have a special love relationship? When it comes to human beings, I'm going to define the ideal woman, just the way we define a circle here. Okay. The ideal woman is intelligent, voluptuous, beautiful, independent, but open-hearted, good-hearted, young, blonde, and named Jennifer. who comes closest here to fitting that description (laughs) so while i love and appreciate the ultimate nature of all of you i can still have a special relationship because i found the ideal woman and just like this an ideal circle now let me say this is my ideal woman not necessarily yours and it's not an ideal I chose, so to speak. You could say in a poetic way, this was implanted in my soul from the beginning of time. And so here she is. So of course I can have a special relationship with her. There's no conflict is what I'm trying to get at here. They, they are at two different levels, and yet ultimately it's all one. Our minds divide them up into levels. Is everybody following what I'm trying to say here? And again, if you look around at other Gnostics, you know, they had their favorite beings. Uh, Buddha had Ananda. Ananda was his his worst disciple. Poor Ananda could never get it right, but he was his cousin, I think, and our nephew, I think, was his nephew. And uh, he'd always having to scold Ananda and go over everything twice or three times with Ananda. Good thing for us, too, because we wouldn't have heard these teachings, you know, put in ways we could understand. But Jesus... Um, in the Gospels, there are a couple of references to his most beloved disciple. And the end of John, it's a big mystery who this might be. And then when you go read the Gnostic, and here I mean the Gnostic as a historical category of followers of Jesus the, that developed in the several centuries after his death. But if you go read the Gnostic Gospels, it's quite clear that Mary Magdalene was his favorite disciple. And it's strongly suggested that she was his consort. So he had a favorite disciple. Uh, Ramana Maharshi had a favorite cow. What was this cow saying? What? What? Yes. I mean, of all the cows, why was Ramana Maharshi have a special relationship with this cow? <coughs> There's no big mystery about this. Look at your own experience. You can appreciate generalities and also appreciate specific examples of it. You can appreciate music, but also have a favorite tune or <coughs> it's, it's not a big, uh, a big problem or a big mystery. Finally, just as there are two truths from a mystic's point of view, the absolute and the relative, the universal and the particular, there are also two kinds of commitment. And that was her final question. Is about can an enlightened being, being unattached to anything, make and keep a commitment? And to do this properly, again, let's talk about these two kinds of commitments. We could say one is a conditional commitment and the other is unconditional commitment. And in our human lives or relationships between other sentient beings even we extend extend that we have conditional commitments we make and break conditional commitments when you go to work this is a conditional commitment to show up at work to do so many hours of work kind of whatever your job is if you're going to get a paycheck at the end of the week or whatever and if you start showing up to work and no paycheck this week well you might Give the boss a break. But, you know, after a while, you're going to say, Hey, wait a minute. The commitment's off. It was conditioned on my getting a paycheck. I ain't getting a paycheck, so I ain't showing up to work. Marriage should be and can be a very deep commitment, but it is still conditional. And most cultures recognize that. In most cultures, adultery is a condition for dissolution of the marriage or other outrageous forms of behavior. And even in the Catholic Church, where there is no, even adultery is not grounds for divorce, there is no divorce, it's grounds for separation, but not a divorce, the marriage is still only until death do us part. So it's conditioned on being an embodied being, living. And once one partner dies, that's the end of the marriage, so it's still conditioned. So... Can a Gnostic have commitments, conditional commitments like that? Sure, why not? Just like everybody else. And they function pretty much the same way. In some sense, it's easier for a Gnostic to keep a conditional commitment because one of the things that does not enter into this is personal desire. So I uh, make a commitment to come up here to Oregon to teach. That has nothing to do with what I desire or not. It doesn't make any difference to me. So as long as the conditions stay, uh, I'm here. Now, several things could happen. First of all, none of you could start showing up on Sundays. Then there's no particular reason to be here. This organization's run by a board of directors. I'm actually hired. I mean, am not paid anything, uh, anything in terms of money, uh, but the board of directors could fire me and they could get a new spiritual director. So then I'd be free. Then I maybe could go to Tahiti or some, you know, place. (laughs) Pittsburgh. I'd probably go to Pittsburgh. I've been to Tahiti. (laughs) So that's the difference. There's not this constant agony over what do I want as opposed to what my commitment is. As long as the conditions hold, the commitment's there. In relationships, I think one of the most important things is not to confuse a conditional commitment with unconditional love. In a certain sense, unconditional commitment is a response to the world that is Always a yes response. Sufis say it beautifully, I think. Uh, Allah, in order to create the world, and Allah didn't just create the world at the beginning there, he's continuing to create the world. All he has to do is say, be, kun in Arabic, is it? Kun. And things come into existence. And this is happening all the time. And as soon as Allah says, kun, the Gnostic, comes into being without the least hesitation. Now I can remember a lot of hesitation about coming into being, about being here. Do you know what I mean? Being present right now. And whatever's arising, being called to respond, to be, to be here, always, without hesitation. That doesn't mean you're always jumping up and down and roaring. You can be here very, very quietly. But it's it's always to be present, to be willing to be. And that involves love, not necessarily lots of emotion. But love in the sense of appreciation, embracing, accepting, uh, non-judging from the ground. You can make judgments up here, but from the ground, not judging it. It's all one. It's all a divine manifestation. That is unconditional love. There are no conditions on that. And you can love even a particular person unconditionally. But that doesn't mean you can live with that person. And you shouldn't have any uh, confusion about that and get into a lot of suffering because of that. There are people in my life who I love dearly that I could not live with. Because what I am called to do, their way of living and all that, will not allow that to happen. So, part company. This is one of the beauties of boundaries, the fact that from a mystic's point of view, boundaries are imaginary. We draw the boundaries and then decide on these things in relation to what we've done. And that's the freedom to do this. Unconditional commitment ultimately is to be the reality, to be consciousness. Just simply to be aware. And this is why we were created to begin with. We were created to love and to know reality, whether we know it or not this is what Ibn Arabi, a great Sufi, says. The servant is the hearing and the seeing of the real. And by this the cosmos is established. For God looks at the cosmos only through the sight of his servant. This actually sounds like a very high fluting kind of uh, teaching or whatever. It's something, again, you can inquire and examine in your own life. Right now, this manifestation... What you see, what you hear, what you feel, what you touch is only, only happening because you are there, because that awareness, consciousness is there. And if we want to analyze this a little bit, Karen and Mikhail are sitting right next to each other. They look at that window. What do you see at that window? Sky, tree. Sky tree, tree. trees, right. and you see some windows there, right? They seem to be seeing the same thing, but they aren't just from the laws of physics. There's a parallax difference, and what just like if I take a camera and shoot from here, and then I move over and shoot here and try to put the two pictures together, they won't quite go together. Do you understand what I'm talking about? What he's seeing is unique, unique to him. No one will ever see it that way uh, again. No one's ever seen it that way before, and he won't see it that way in the next moment. And it's totally different from what Karen's seeing. Do you see what I'm talking about? And the same with the hearing, the sound, the everything else. Think about this right now. This would not be known if you weren't knowing it. All of this would not be known. It would be unknown. We couldn't even get together and imagine some objective reality out there that we're all seeing, if it's not manifesting. You may have seen the Time-Life books about how the universe came into to being from a materialist point of view. You know, the planets coalesced around the Sun, they were globs of a star or something, and everything cooled down. And they have the artist renders this, and you'll see then At the early stages of the planetary system, you'll see the sun, and you'll see the earth, and then Saturn here and there, and they'll say, this is what it looked like. (laughs) You know, this is a billion years ago, whatever. Well, it didn't look like that. It didn't look like anything, because there was no one there to see it. And that artist, and this fools you, has has taken up a position. This artist has become a location in which all this could manifest. But without... uh, without a a location for consciousness, doesn't manifest. It's unmanifest. It's unknown, formless. It doesn't appear. This is what Ibn Arabi means when he says this. This is the, (laughs) the infinite value, preciousness of our lives. So this is our unconditional commitment to be what we were created for, to experience everything. And it's unconditional because you can't choose what you might experience. You can't live in this world and say, well, I'm willing to experience joy, but I don't know about sorrow. I don't want to experience any sorrow. You can't, you know. It's it's unconditional commitment. And in a certain sense, it's compulsory. There is one little area where we seem to have some choice. And Simone Weil describes this. She says, men can never escape from obedience to God. A creature cannot but obey. The only choice given to men as intelligent and free creatures is to desire obedience or not desire it. A worldly person resists life, at least half of life, that half of life that they don't like. The other half of life is fine. In fact, not only do they not resist it, they're running ahead of themselves trying to grab it all, and of course it's all evaporating in their hands, because that's this nature, it's all ephemeral and transitory. So, a worldly, a deluded person resists obeying, but there's no choice here. A spiritual person desires to obey. It starts to turn around. They start to see the beauty of the life. They start to see that it's all a big dance, and yes, actually, I'd like to dance, And yes, I'd even like to dance, not just the foxtrot, but I'll try the samba too and the mambo and whatever else coming down the pipe. And a Gnostic, though, has abandoned all of that, neither resists nor desires. The Gnostic just leaves it all up to God, if you like, just leaves it all up to consciousness. And then a final way of expressing this that I think is so beautiful is the Sufi. Term. In fact, I think it comes from a hadith attributed to the prophet. I become his ears so he can listen with that ear. I become his eye so he can see with that eye. I become his tongue so he can speak with that tongue. I become his hand so he can grasp with that hand. And I become his foot so he can walk with that foot. And I would just add one thing here, and that is, this is expressed from the point of view of the path, and someone uh, coming to this realization, but from the other side of the realization, you don't become his eye, you don't become his hand, you don't become his foot. You are it, whether you like it or not. We've gone on quite long this morning, so normally we have uh, questions and comments and all that. <coughs> I think we'll bring the formal part of the morning to a close, and I'm not going place And if any of you want to hang out here, and, uh, continue talking, that's great.